Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. You may have seen news reports that the White House wants to substantially increase defense spending and to offset those increases slash discretionary spending elsewhere. In particular, the White House has signaled that foreign aid spending will be sharply reduced. Foreign aid is one of those issues that is pretty widely misunderstood by the general public, and I think fairly so because it's really complicated. I've spent over 10 years covering issues related to foreign aid, and frankly, I learn something new and surprising about it all the time. So what do we actually mean when we talk about foreign aid? What are some of the real-world implications of a steep reduction of U.S. foreign assistance? And what are the politics of it all? On the line with me to discuss these questions and more is Joel Charney, who is the U.S. Director of the Norwegian Refugee Council, which is a large international NGO on the front lines of some major crises worldwide. Joel does a good job of walking me through some of the big picture questions surrounding foreign aid, but also some of the specific on-the-ground implications of what cuts would mean. He also makes the case that this is a uniquely bad time to be cutting back on foreign aid. As we enter into budget battle season in Washington, D.C., I think this is a useful conversation to provide some context in which these budget debates will unfold over the coming weeks and months. It's also, frankly, useful information that any engaged citizen ought to be aware. So as you might have heard, if you listened to my previous announcement, my previous episode, we are in the middle of a fundraising drive this month. And to that end, I have created special bonus content, bonus episodes, what I'm calling background briefings for those of you who generously make a contribution to the podcast. These special episodes are intended to give you some historical context and some background into currently relevant issues in the news, and also provide some background knowledge on key ideas, debates, dilemmas, and institutions relevant to world affairs. So to that end, I've recorded two of these bonus episodes already and have more on the way. The first episode is a fantastic background briefing on international relations theory. I speak to a fantastic professor at Georgetown University who packs a semester worth of IR theory into one 30-minute episode. So if you're ever wondering what the big isms are in international relations, what they mean and why it all matters to international affairs, have a listen. And I speak also with the president of the Arms Control Association about the history of nuclear nonproliferation. That is, how the international community decided after the advent of nuclear weapons to try to contain and constrain their spread. Future exclusive content includes a conversation about the history of U.S.-China relations and a brief history of NATO. And if you become a premium subscriber, you can suggest the episodes, ideas, and topics that you want me to cover in one of these special briefings. There are also tons of other rewards that you receive for being a recurring contributor to the podcast and also my unyielding and undying thanks. So if this podcast is part of your routine, if you realize that this is totally unique, the kind of content I produce week after week is like nothing else you can get anywhere, then please 
become a recurring contributor. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the support the show link. Or if you're listening to this on your phone in iTunes, just click the link in the description field of this episode and it'll take you to the platform where you can make your contribution. Thank you so, so much. And now here is Joel Charney. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I think what's striking is how much security assistance is actually bundled in to, you know, what we what we consider foreign aid. So you do have things like financing for foreign military or special funds that are developed. You throw in, you know, narcotics control. And then on the other side of the ledger, if you will, you have things that I, I think the average person would more likely think of when, you know, the topic of foreign aid comes up, which is support to global health programs and other basic assistance, such as for education, um, all the, you know, emergency response that we, that the U.S. does, whether it's responding to typhoon, like in the Philippines, or some of the long-term support that um, the U.S. provides in, in conflict situations like Syria and the Syria refugee crisis, mm-hmm. you know, money for U.N. agencies and, and so on, food for peace. I mean, those are the, the stuff that we normally think, I, associate with, with yeah, exactly, foreign aid. Exactly. The, yeah. the do-goodery sort of uh, side of, yes, of, that, of foreign aid. So, I mean, in, in general, we're talking, what, about about $40 billion total economic development and security assistance together? Yeah, and, that's and, right. And so I'm, the, I'm looking at some numbers now. The account is about yeah. $40 billion. Yeah, so the account itself is about $40 billion. And I, I think about 15, 16 go to security and about 25, 26 go to the economic uh, development and aid side of the, the ledger. Yeah, that's right. The obvious point being that it's a tiny, tiny portion of a $4 trillion budget. And this gets us into the classic you know, this anecdote has been used for years, and depressingly, it's still true, which is you stop an average person on the street in New York, Washington, you know, Des Moines, or wherever, and you ask that person, well, what would you guess is the percentage of the total U.S. budget that goes to foreign assistance? And again and again, surveys show that a typical American is going to say 25%. Mm-hmm. And again, the actual percentage is below 1%. So, I mean, we, we have a kind of collective failure, I think, in our community to get the American people to understand just what a tiny portion, you know, there's this real sense in the U.S., um, especially now with all this America first rhetoric, that 
you know, somehow we're, we're just wasting tons of money on foreign assistance, yet it really is such a tiny portion of, um, of U.S. expenditure. Yeah, I, I think the last survey I saw on this was taken last year by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and it found precisely what you said, that most people surveyed uh, believe it's 25% when it's actually 1%. I did see another survey, and I can't recall who took it, but I have seen this. I don't think I'm making this up. You ask people, um, how much is U.S. foreign aid? And they say 25%. And then you ask them, how much should it be? And they think probably closer to 10%. No, exa- exactly. That's, again, I've been, I've been in this field for so long. And again, that, that's the kicker part of the anecdote, which is a typical American citizen would want our foreign aid budget to be 10 times what it, what it actually mm-hmm. is. And again, it, it's not to blame people for, for being ignorant. I, I, I just think it is, you know, foreign aid because it's U.S. money going overseas and there's a sense that somehow it might be wasted or, or go to the wrong people. Mm-hmm. There's just such a heavy dose of skepticism about it that there's a, there is such a tendency to exaggerate you know exactly how much is going and you know the irony being that people want want us want the US government to spend actually much more mm-hmm. than than the government is actually spending um so on the the security side of the aid ledger i, I think it's it's all pretty straight, straightforward and self-explanatory a good chunk of that goes to building up the afghan security forces a good chunk of that goes to key strategic allies like israel or egypt uh, to bolster mm. their, their own defense on the economic aid, economic development side of, of the ledger. Can you talk a, a little bit about how that money is dispersed, how it's used and, and sort of where it goes in, in broad strokes? And I know it's like fairly complicated, uh, but in general, when you're talking about foreign aid, that side of foreign aid, how do you reference how, what reference points do you use? Yeah. So, so for me, the, the key division and again, what I assume, one that I assume that most of your listeners will, will understand right off the bat is between long-term development and emergency response. And, you know, so long-term development focus on trying to, you know, build economies overseas, but also deal with some of the long-term issues that, you know, we, to have a healthier world and, you know, a world where, you know, children are safe and everything, where they're educated, you invest in, you invest in health, you invest in education, you invest in agricultural development. And yes, some of this can be done by the private sector, but there's a tendency of the private sector to ignore the needs of, of vulnerable people or perhaps not work in countries where the, where the need is, is greatest. So, you know, things like, um, you know, work with with um, responding to to AIDS and and malaria. Um, uh, some of the support that goes through the United Nations would be on the on the development side, and then on the on the humanitarian side, that's where again the United States funds very generously the response to you know both natural disasters and emergencies that are caused by conflict, giving. A lot of money directly to 
non-governmental organizations like the Norwegian Refugee Council and others, but also, again, giving significant amount of money to UN organizations like mm-hmm. the Office for the High Commissioner for Refugees or the or the World Food Program. So, so now, uh, talk, in, yeah, no, to, can, yeah, can I just stop you there? T- talk me through that because you you are uh, with the the Norwegian Refugee Council, which is one of those NGOs like Save the Children, or also government entities like UNICEF or the World Food Program that's on the front line of responding to these kinds of man-made crises or sudden natural mm-hmm. disasters. Um, so when a disaster strikes or, or when you are looking to raise money for your programs in like Lebanon or, or Jordan or, or Iraq, um, how do you rely on U.S. funding? Like what's that relationship like and, and how does that actually work? Like take me a little bit inside the, the, the sausage making process as it were. Okay. So, I mean, for now, Norwegian, the organization I work for, Norwegian Refugee Council or NRC, gets relatively little funding from the U.S. government. But I'm familiar enough with the process to kind of give mm-hmm. the overview from the standpoint of the, of the community. And, and basically, there's an office within USAID called the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance. They're one of the preeminent um, providers of emergency assistance mm-hmm. in the in the world, I think, among um, among governments, and the beauty of the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance or OFDA is their ability to field technical staff, knowledgeable staff, when an emergency strikes, and the decision making on the OFDA side is is actually quite decentralized. In other words. The key from an NGO perspective uh, to getting money from OFDA, whether it's responding to Typhoon Haiyan or, you know, responding to internal displacement in South Sudan, is basically to be in-country liaising with the emergency response team of OFDA and basically demonstrating that your organization has the ability to respond based on what OFDA has decided are the are the key priorities for US funding in a in a particular place. Now in addition to that and and you know the the some of that OFDA money especially and also um, food for peace money might go through the UN system. Then on the other side, on the, in terms of responding to refugee crises like the Syria um, refugee crisis in Lebanon and Jordan, for example, a lot of the U.S. response would go to the Office for the High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. And then the interesting thing from an NGO perspective is UNHCR then not being an organization that does much direct implementation will then contract non-governmental organizations to do the to do the actual actual programming. So a U.S. grant, uh, you know, like let's say the U.S. would allocate you know two hundred million dollars to UNHCR to their response to the Syria refugee crisis. A lot of that two million, two hundred, sorry, two hundred million dollars. A lot of that two hundred million dollars would, in turn, go to non-governmental mm-hmm. organizations 
that are partners of UNHCR. Like working on specific things, like, like say, you know, UNHCR might not have sufficient number of Arabic-speaking psychologists on staff, right, to, to work you know, with, with trauma victims. They might see a need for trauma victims to, to have some counseling, so they would well, contract that out, I mean, so that's, something like that's that. That's part of it. Okay. I mean, that's part of it, but I mean, some of it just really is, you know, just implementing overall projects. So, like building for example... A Building a camp, um, increasingly, you know, refugees are, are in camps less and less. So, you know, it's like doing youth education, for example, or, you know, setting up a, a health clinic in a, in a, you know, urban neighborhood that refugees can, you know, can, can come to. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just a whole range okay. Okay. of, of brace, basic programming that NGOs carry out, you know, using funding from UNHCR okay. that may have originated with the U.S. or may have originated from another donor. So, so what would be some of the, the effects on, on the humanitarian uh, emergency relief side that we're talking about now of, um, you know, a significant minor or uh, medium-sized cuts to the, the foreign aid budget writ large? Well, I'm we're worried because basically in 2017, we have a famine already declared in South Sudan and the possibility of famine, a famine declaration for Somalia, Yemen, and northern Nigeria. So from a, from a humanitarian or emergency response perspective, we're looking at a pretty serious year ahead of us that's going to demand a lot of the entire humanitarian community. In 2016, the United States was globally the number one humanitarian donor with a total all-in budget, OFDA, you know, the Refugee Bureau, Food for Peace, of somewhere around $7 billion or $7.5 billion. You cut that by 30%, potentially in the face of four famines. And yes, that will hurt. I mean, Mark, I'm, I'm one of these people that tends not to obsess about money and tries to focus on doing the best we can with the resources available. That's always been my attitude. I think sometimes we over obsess about money, but given what we're facing right now in the world and given U.S. historical leadership as the number one donor. So let me give you an example. In Oslo on the 24th of February, so about a week ago, there was a conference on the crisis in northern Nigeria and neighboring countries, the Lake Chad Basin. Mm -hmm. Governments were asked to pledge at that conference. The U.S. did not pledge. Now, is this that is rare? Does un, that happen? Does that not happen? Yeah, I'm saying it's 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 not only is it rare, it's it's unheard of. I mean, for uh for the U.S. and the U.S. was represented at the at the conference. It's not like they didn't go or there was some kind of political obstacle. Both um both OFDA and the Refugee Bureau were um were represented, but they made they pledged no new money. Now that's kind of scary for me. I mean, there may be internal reasons and maybe there'll be further money for northern Nigeria down the road. But for the U.S. to go to a major pledging, you know, major conference on a, on a serious emergency and not pledge a dime, 
that's um, that's rare. When it's typically the largest donor to these sorts of pledging conferences. Exactly. So it's worth just kind of explaining how these pledging conferences work. Basically, when there is a crisis like um, a catastrophe in northern Nigeria or Syria or or else South Sudan, um, there will have what, what are what are called in the UN system pledging conferences, where governments and, and other donors come together to try to raise funds funds against a, uh, a humanitarian appeal. Um, and uh, you're saying that this conference happened in Oslo in late February and, and the U S just didn't show up who that's, that's just kind of stunning to me, actually. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, they, they did show up. I mean, they were represented, but they didn't pledge. And again, I, I don't know. I were actually, there's a meeting being organized here and here in Washington uh, next week with the um, acting head of um, the refugee bureau and the acting, you know, the the person who's acting as the um, uh, in the position that oversees the work of the Office of Foreign Disaster Assistance at USAID, and you know, we'll we'll the you know the NGO community will will get more information from that at that point about just how they see the budget picture as it relates to what we're starting to call the four famines. Again, South Sudan, Somalia, Yemen, and, and northern Nigeria. Even though one of, Maybe, only one of those has, has so far been officially declared a famine, we should say. Correct. But, but I mean, if you, if yeah. you look at the, you know, you, if you look at the, I, I, again, the I'm not predicting not that they're going to be declared yeah. famines, but I mean, these are, these are by any measure very serious situations with huge numbers of, of vulnerable people and again, the U.S. is, and, and I, I can't stress enough that I'm not talking Obama administration, I'm not talking Bush, I'm not talking Clinton, I'm not talking, you know, uh, uh, Bush one. I'm talking a historic mm-hmm. U.S. commitment to be in the lead in responding to humanitarian emergencies. Yeah, I, I mean, so, one of the things I've been doing with this podcast is try to, like, figure out in detail the ways in which um, the Trump administration so far has been sort of aberrational to, um, you know, the, the trajectory of, of us foreign policy over the last 50 years. And, and this seems to be one of them, but I, I should say that they may run into some big problems in Congress if they do intend to significantly cut foreign aid. I mean, you know, this better than I do, but foreign aid is is one of those issues which surprisingly has fairly broad bipartisan support. I'd say I think you have a lot of religious conservatives who, um, for for their reasons, uh, support a robust foreign aid budget. You have liberals who are kind of globally minded also support it, mm-hmm. and so you do have. Um, it seems to be one of the last remaining issues that in which there is actually like bipartisan consensus. Over and, and it seems that you saw some tweets and some statements from Congress suggesting that uh, this might be fairly tough for the administration to to push through. Yeah, no, you you took the words out right out of my mouth. I mean, it is you know people say, well, Joel, what's it like to work on you know humanitarian advocacy in in Washington? And I actually say it's actually quite rewarding because it is almost the last. It, it's one of the last. Um, you know, bipartisan issues in, um, in this very divided, uh, divided capital. And, you know, three leading Republicans, um, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham, 
Marco Rubio and um, and even Mitch McConnell, the majority leader, have all pretty much said in the last 24 hours that this is simply not going to fly. Um, that is a 37% cut across the board to um, you know to the account that um, that you know covers uh, foreign foreign aid, the the so-called 150 account. Um, you know they and you know we've the uh, U.S. Global Leadership Conference has you know, 120, you know, I think it's all former military, but respected military leaders who have, who have dropped a letter saying, you know, the U.S. needs to maintain its, um, it, its foreign aid budget, that it advances U.S. security, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, the, but, but what, Mark, what I've been saying, you know, to get to this aberrational thing or how serious is this, I think we would, we, we're making a mistake if we focus only on the budget numbers and then kind of say, oh, well, let's not worry about it because, you know, this is, there's bipartisan support. It won't be so bad in the end. First of all, by going in with a 30% cut, they're almost guaranteeing that there will be a cut. In other words, just from a sheer light negotiation and bargaining standpoint, you know, given the other part of the deal, right? yeah, the art of the deal, but you've also got all these America first priorities. And then the second thing is, I mean, will this calm down or not? We'll see. But, you know, there, I mean, Steve Bannon, uh, Miller, Trump himself, um, you know, the other advisors in the Bannon faction, Gorka, I mean, they're, they're openly admitting that they want to disrupt this global order that the U.S. helped create. So I, I, I think this whole budget is kind of, uh, you know, it, it is a shot across the bow, and it's emphasizing that, you know, there's a, there's a feeling in the White House that the, the global order has been a ripoff, and, um, you know, we don't, we don't like the way it's, um, it's worked for the U.S. It hasn't advanced U.S. interests. Yeah. And, you know, we want to we 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 want to be disruptive. We want you know, I, I think what's going to be interesting to see is basically, OK, you've got your 120 generals or whatever, you know, signing this letter. And, you know, you've got 100 NGOs who are defending you on funding, et cetera, et cetera. You know, maybe the White House doesn't care about that. I mean, I, I think it's going to be interesting mm-hmm. to see. And. Again, I, I just feel like by coming in with such a severe cut, um, our our anal- our collective NGO analysis down here is there we're we're facing a cut for sure in in fiscal year eighteen. Well, can, the question is mm-hmm. going to be what the magnitude is. So, well, can, can I ask you? I, I mean, you've been in the humanitarian world for a while, also doing advocacy work. I, I remember you from your your work at Refugees International and 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 elsewhere. I mean, to what extent do you? see this as as a a failure of the advocacy community or the humanitarian community or even you personally that um you know the 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 Trump administration or um public perception of aid seems to be that aid is a you know more of a charity that the US gives out of goodwill as opposed to um something that fundamentally underpins US national security interests you know that's a tough question because I'm I'm one of these people, for better or for worse, that actually hates making the security argument. I mean, I want to make the argument on 
our responsibility on, you know, we're part of the world, the world is our neighborhood. And what I'm disappointed in, honestly, is our, not our failure to make the security argument, but our failure to make the argument that this is fundamentally the, A, it's the right thing to do. And I guess, B, I'm willing to go to the point of saying, you know, if, if, if countries are working and countries are healthy and children are going to school and mothers aren't dying at childbirth, that that's fundamentally, you know, beneficial to the U.S. from uh, certainly from an economic standpoint in the sense of, you know, people being able to afford a, a decent standard of living and, you know, buying goods that are produced locally, et cetera. So, but I, I am, I mean, I, I've been doing this a long time and I, I do feel like we, we failed to convey just how important the work is, you know, and, and important, I think, again, not so much from a security standpoint, but just from a sheer human solidarity standpoint, a, a, a standpoint of, of empathy and, and wanting to care for your neighbor. I mean, we, we should be able to make a convincing argument, I feel, at that level. And we clearly, at least for the, for the time being, have, um, are, appear to be losing that argument. Uh, well, Joel, thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. Okay, great. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Joel for unpacking that for me and for all of you. And again, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. Click on the support the show link to unlock the bonus episodes and also other rewards. And thank you. I, I really do need this support. I cannot just chase down advertisers month after month. It's so time consuming. I'd much rather put my time into creating great episodes, great content for you. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.